Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs in the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. Well, tonight we have a special guest, Mary Dixon. Hi there. I mean, we've been talking for like three hours, so really this podcast, you're going to get 10 minutes. Yeah. Because that's all you're getting, because we're committing to Mary. Okay. Okay. But in talking with Mary, Mary's been a customer of our shop for years. She works at KUED. She does all kinds of zillions of things. Yeah, I do. I do. What's your favorite? Uh, my favorite thing to do? Gosh, that's a good question. Travel. Travel? That's not part of my job at all. I just like to go places. Okay. And you, I know this, but you, in your traveling. Yeah. So right now, here's what I hate. I hate our culture has these stereotypes about what all these other countries do. And our, you know, all these countries, there's shithole countries, there's this country, there's that. We think that we have it so good. We think that we're so different. We think that we're the only one that that does it. What I know about you is it's really important for you to host exchange students. Yes. Why do you do that? Tell us about that. Um, Because I just love the young energy in my house. I love these kids. I love learning about their cultures, some of their language, and eating their food, and just getting to know them. I, I just think... The best thing you can do to know someone is to share a meal with them. And for me, it's to share my house with them. So I've had exchange students since 2009, and mostly they're college students. Well, they're all college students, and they live with me while they go to the university. And the original arrangement was that they would stay a year. But I always thought from the time they moved in, if I like them, they can stay as long as they want. Well, I always liked them. So I had kids with me their entire college, like four and a half years, and I would have some two at once, but sometimes I'd have three. And we got to be like family, especially the ones who were there four and a half years. So the first one I had was from Saudi Arabia. He was from Riyadh, and he was just the most amazing young man I learned so much from him. He learned a lot from me. I helped them with their English. I helped them with history. I took them places because I thought it was really important they get to see this culture through my eyes. So I would bring them over to your shop, as you know. They were always here. And I took them to the national parks. I took them to dance concerts, which they have nothing like that at home. And so I, I started out with one young, the one young boy from Riyadh. And... A couple months later, the agency at the university asked me if I would take a Chinese boy because they knew I had the room. And I said, well, let me check with Batter. And they said, oh, you don't need to check with him. I said, no, yes, I do. It's his house too now. Yeah. And so Batter said, well, as you like. So that's when Wei came, you know, my baby Wei. And Wei stayed four and a half years as well. And then Fahad came, you know him, and he was there four and a half years. And I tell you, when they left, it like ripped my heart out. I cried and cried when each one of them left. And I would give them each a little bag of charms and a letter I wrote them. And I would also give them all the pictures I'd taken of them because I love to take pictures. And they made fun of me all the time for taking so many (laughs) pictures. But I'll tell you, they wanted every last one of them when they left. And I stay in touch with them. I mean, I've had probably... 
Okay, that was three. Then I had Ahmed. He came, he was from Jordan. And he, he actually just came to my house for dinner one night because I had some Jordanian visitors over. So I thought, oh, I'll invite Ahmed. He's from Jordan. He'll like this. So I'm cleaning up the dishes, and he comes in and goes, can I ask you something? I said, sure. Do you have an extra room? And I said, well, I have a TV room. I could turn it into a bedroom. Okay. I said, do you want to see it? So I shot to him. He goes, yeah, I'll take it. I said, okay, well, when do you want to move in? Tomorrow. <laughs> so, <laughs> so he moved in, and you know that they all go on. I mean, this has been years ago that those first boys came. I just went to Dubai in January to meet Batter because I can't, it's hard for me to get a visa to Saudi Arabia. They don't have visitors' visas, and I don't have business there, and I'm not going on Hajj. So he met me in Dubai. Way, I've been to visit him in China. He went to graduate school in New York. I went to see him twice. He comes home for Thanksgiving. He'll call and say, I'm coming home for Thanksgiving. And I'm on the phone with him all the time. He's back in China now. Fahad got married. I was supposed to go to his wedding, but again, I couldn't get a visa. Ahmed got married in August. So I went to Jordan to his wedding and then went to Petra and Wadi Ram, and I just, I get to see the world because of these amazing boys that I met. It's just, it's been one of the richest experiences of my life. And I've had probably, I had a total of nine. So I've had six more since those first four. And, and my little, my nephew lives with me now, and his daughter, we have part time, she's four. And when the last boy left in September to go back, he was from Saudi Arabia too, to go back, she said, Mary, we need to get some more boys. <laughs> it's really cute because she loved those kids. And, I, you know, really, I stay in touch with them. The one who left last summer wants to come back this summer. And the other day I got home, like, late from being out last weekend, and there are these three boys, Arab boys, sitting at my table, and I'm trying, searching their face, thinking, now, do I know them? Do I know them? And they had this big bouquet of flowers. And they said... These are from Abdulaziz. He asked us to bring them to you. Ah, uh, it was so sweet. And then we FaceTimed him so we could talk <laughs> to him. And then those boys were—they were all from Oman, and I didn't know very much about Oman. And so I said, "Gosh, you guys should come over Sunday. Let's make kapsa." Mm -hmm. So Sunday night, they all came over and they brought another friend and made kapsa. And they were showing us videos of their country, and they just—they loved it. Do you have roommates yet from them? Did Not yet. Not yet. I so could, maybe next week. Though. Maybe next week one of their friends will call and say, Mary, I would like a room. <laughs> yeah. And then I actually was lucky enough to have a Saudi artist come and stay with me because as part of doing contact, I, I interview a lot of people from the arts community and from the nonprofit world, people who are doing just amazing things in this community to really make a difference. And Yumoka... Um, was bringing in an exhibit of Saudi artists, which is an incredibly rare thing. So we decided to do a contact in the community, which is where we go out on location and do it. And out comes this Saudi woman. You know, her hair is uncovered. She's just beautiful, and she's got this great robe thing on. And I just immediately adored her. And she was so nervous to be interviewed, especially because she really has to watch what she says. And we just sat and had this great conversation. I told her about the boys, and she said, I really want to go hiking. I said, I'll take you hiking this weekend. We'll go. Well, she ended up staying in the States an extra three weeks and stayed with me. 
Wow. <laughs> so I've just, I just love meeting these people. I've just had the best time. I'm really, really lucky. I'm so lucky, all the people I get to meet. And, and for me, from an outside perspective, I wish everybody had a taste of your life. Because, and I mean yeah. that in the yeah. sense that everybody is so afraid of the unknown. I know, and I know. that's so dumb. Like, we're yeah. so the same. We are and, so the same. I mean, I, I would watch these boys go through everything American kids go through, you know? Heartbreak, um, you know, missing their families. And they, what they wanted more than anything here was a family. They wanted to recreate family here, and I was their mom. They all called me mom. And I brought them into my family. My mother called Way, you know Way. Um, she would introduce him to people in the nursing home she was in. As this is my grandson, Way. <laughs> and that just meant the world to him. He loved that. And I really, really miss them a lot. I miss them a lot. Well, I have a feeling that you'll probably only go a couple weeks before you have. You a, think so? Yeah, somebody I else get some more. I mean, I might even need a place <laughs> to live. So I mean, it depends. I may have to like. I, I can see if I could live in the TV room in or the something. TV room, yeah. But well, and you mentioned a little briefly about um, contact. Yeah. And your show, and I know we 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 talked about this earlier, and we may not have it on the recording. But you you mentioned an incident. So oh yeah, of some okay. The people who are on and and thing, like one of your experiences. Yeah, the thing I love about that is just as I said, the people I get to meet. It really is a privilege. And sometimes you have no idea what to expect when they come on. There was a man who came on in a Hawaiian shirt, and he had something to do with coffee in Hawaii. And I thought, I'm not even sure why we booked him. And then he told his story of how he had gone to Thailand and he saw these incredibly poor villages where the parents were so impoverished that they would put their kids into sex trafficking just to support the family. And it just killed him. And so he decided if they had a way to make a living, they wouldn't have to do that. So he was going as a one man, find a way to help these families make a living. And he thought, well, this soil could probably grow coffee. So he went to Hawaii. He got coffee plants. He brought them back to this village in Thailand, taught the people how to plant them and take care of them. So they became coffee farmers and sold coffee. And so here's this one man who made an incredible difference just because he had a good, good heart. There was another kid who came on, young kid in his 20s, and he was on to talk about a taco festival. And I thought, a taco festival? You thought somebody okay. was going to have a big party the <laughs> night before, had yeah. the cravings of tacos. Right. And so he came on and told why he was doing it. And he was doing it because he had been involved with Meals on Wheels. And when Trump's administration cut funding for Meals on Wheels, it just killed him because he knew that for a lot of those elderly, the only contact they had with other people was when someone delivered them a meal. And he decided he was going to figure out how to do a fundraiser for Meals on Wheels. So what did he know? He knew tacos. So he and his family made all these different tacos, and they had a big taco festival. And I was just so impressed with this young kid in his 20s. I thought, you know, that, that young generation is really amazing. Look at this kid who's really going to make a difference for a cause he believes in. And it was so moving to us that... We decided to have KUED be a media sponsor of it. 
so we could help him get more people there. I mean, I just, I really, I meet these people who start organizations, who help people, and who offer incredible services to this community. I get to find out about them, and sometimes I can tell people, oh, I had someone on my show, you should call this person, they can help you with this, or this person, they can help you with this. And, and to me, that's like the best part of what I do. I know you're still with KUD, but do you also teach at the college? I taught at the university for like six years. I, I taught a media literacy class in the honors program with Fred Esplin, who was my former general manager and just as one of my heroes. So we taught this class, and then when he became vice president, I I took it over. And Holly Mullen, who was a columnist at the Tribune and a really good friend of mine, we taught it together. I loved that class. These kids were so smart, and I learned a lot from them. And they learned a lot about how to be very discriminating consumers of media because it's such a powerful, powerful tool today, and it influences public opinion in ways we don't even really understand. I just think people need to be very... They, they, they need to be critical thinkers, and that's something most universities don't teach anymore. They don't teach people how to think. And so I tried to teach them how to think and how to be critical of what they read and how to look at sources they could trust. It was, it was a great experience. I loved doing it, but it was a lot of work. It was hard to do that and have a job. Would you say the greatest lesson they taught you was just how important the media was? I think it was more about how open their generation is to figuring things out and how much their generation wants to make it a better world because they know the kind of mess they're inheriting. And it made me feel terrible to think of these young kids starting lives in this world we've left them. I'm going to keep making chocolates. Well, okay, I got to be honest. Like, I'm not even going to make the chocolates, but I will keep offering people haystacks just to make a little difference in the world. You made a difference in my world when I would come in here when I was having a bad day and say, Steve, I'm having a terrible day, and you gave me a little bag with five dark chocolate haystacks. I need to improve my day, Steve. You did make a difference. Go out and make difference for the world, people. One chocolate at a time. That's what That's I'm trying right. to do. That's right. One chocolate at a time. So you, you mentioned your mom. Where, where did you uh, grow up? Did you grow up here in I Salt Lake? I grew up in Salt Lake. Yeah. I grew up right here in Salt Lake. And, you know, I love this place. I love, I love the environment. Well, the environment's kind of. A mess. I love the landscape of the place. I love how close we are to the desert. I love going up in the mountains. I have two huge dogs. I love taking them up in the foothills, up the Bonneville Shoreline Trail. I mean, to me, getting out in nature is really restorative and really calming and relaxing. And I think it's so important to be out in nature. You just have to get out there away from everything and let your brain think. It's like, where else can you drive for an hour and be in so many different types of places? You know what? It's so true. I went to Midway over President's Day weekend and just discovered all these great places. We, we went up into the wetlands by Deer Creek. We saw beaver. We saw birds. And it was beautiful. We're trudging through swampy, barshy area. Then we found this amazing hot spring that's kind of hidden away. I don't think anyone knew about but we saw these trucks and cars by a place that said no trespassing. And then I saw people standing in towels. I said, there's a hot spring over that ridge. I know it. And there was. 
But yeah, I mean, they're just beautiful places everywhere. I just think... Would you say Utah's underappreciated? Oh, yeah. I think it's starting to be discovered, though. I don't know how much I want it to be discovered. I don't want it being crowded. So I keep love it a it. secret? Well, it's just such an easy place to live. It's so easy to be here. And nature's just so close. The air's hideous, but, you know... We've got to do something about that. But I love that you can just drive down to southern Utah and hike in the desert and or be up in the mountains. And we really have an amazing state. And there are all these hidden little gems. I'm always, like, trying to find them and tell people about them. I just heard about this place in Monticello. It's a historical place. It was called Mary Ogden's House of Truth. I mean, I, I find all these things. And did you know that Brigham Young had a son who was a cross-dresser? No. Madam Patterini. He okay. actually sang in the tabernacle dressed as a woman. And I think one of our past guests talked yeah, about Steve him. Yeah, Steve that's what he their did? New, that's what their new drink is named after. Yes, yes, that's how I discovered this, from their drink. It yeah. was Madam Patterini. I discovered it from that and then looked it up. Because, you know, I always have to look up everything I want to know more about. I think that's really one of the most important things. You have to just stay curious. Yeah, but it can get into trouble too, being too curious. So yeah, I guess. You, I guess maybe weigh that. Don't get <laughs> the no trespassing sign. If they have guns around, maybe avoid that area. But if not, yeah. But it was funny because there were a bunch of you know young people in these hot springs, and it was starting to snow. And I said to this girl, "So it says no trespassing." She goes, "Oh yeah, they they let people in here now." I said, "Well, so how do you how do you get to use this?" You just take off your clothes and get in. <laughs> I, I was snowing. I didn't have a towel, so um, That's funny. we drove on. But now I know where it is. Yeah. Well, and you, okay, you've also written a play. Oh, yeah. And, and have yeah. you written more than one play? I've written a lot of monologues. Okay. Um, but only that one full-length play because it was about my big passion. Um, I'm a downwinder. I don't know if you know. For people that don't know what that is, okay. what is that? When they did nuclear testing in the desert of Nevada during the Cold War, which was for 40 years, from 1951 to 1992, um, they did 926 nuclear tests out in that desert Nevada, and the winds blew it all across the country. Utah got hit really hard, the entire state. So I got thyroid cancer from that. I had a sister who got lupus and died. I, the neighborhood I grew up in, so many people got cancers and died either in those years or later because sometimes it takes those cancers 20, 30, 40 years to show up after exposure. So I wrote this play called Exposed. It didn't start out to be a play. I was supposed to write a book. I went to this writing retreat in Mesa Refuge where you had to write about environmental issues, and so I was writing nonfiction about testing, and I never finished it. I had like 275 pages, but I didn't finish. And then I was reading through the minutes of the Atomic Energy Commission. I had these transcripts that had finally been released when Clinton became president because they had been declared secret, top secret. And I'm reading them, and they read like high drama. I mean, there were people arguing for we have to bring it closer to save money, we can't keep doing them in the Pacific, we've got to move them in, let's do them in the desert of Nevada because the Army already owns the proving grounds and all these areas and it won't cost us, and besides, nobody lives out there. Um, and then you would 
I mean, I followed these minutes through all the way till they were conducting the test and people were starting to get sick. The sheep were dying, the cattle were dying. And there was a commissioner who was starting to get worried about it. He said, I don't know if we should keep doing these. I think we need to move these tests. We, we can't keep doing these. And this other commissioner said, nothing's going to get in the way of testing nothing. And they just kept doing them. But reading those minutes, so my original idea was, okay, I'm going to do something based on these minutes. So I started writing this thing, but then I thought, no, that's not enough. You've got to talk about the people that got sick. So I started doing a series of monologues, different people I had interviewed, because I used to write for this thing called the Desert Sun. We monitored the Nevada test site during the years of testing. And I started doing the monologues of these different people. And then I thought, no, that doesn't work either. And I, I would have different actor friends of mine read it and different people I knew. And I met this woman who played the mom, the hippie mom on Dharma and Grave. She was in town, and for some reason I was giving her a ride. And when she told me about the thyroid cancer in her family, I said, where'd you grow up? And she said, New Jersey. I said, Bergen County. And she said, how did you know? I said, it got hit by a lot of fallout. And so I started telling her about, she did like her jaw dropped. She goes, you've got to write about this. I said, well, yeah, I am. I'm writing this play. Well, well, I want my friends to do it. You finish it. My friends are going to do it. And I thought, yeah, sure, sure. And so a couple of weeks later, she calls me. She goes, how's that play coming? Oh, fine. I hadn't done a thing. <laughs> so I thought, well, I better start trying to write this thing. And then I met um, this woman, Aiden Ross, who's a playwright. And we always would show up at the same arts events, concerts, and things, and dance concerts, and she said, oh, I've been meaning to talk to you because I want to do something about downwinders. I said, oh, that's funny, because I'm writing a play about downwinders. <laughs> and she said, it's yours, it's yours, it's your story, I'll help you however I can. And she would meet with me in this little coffee shop on 2nd Ave, like, regularly, and she would bring me written pages of notes. She was amazing. She was my guardian angel. And she, she said, uh, yeah, you, you've got it. You're doing it. You're doing it. And so then that woman again, Mimi Kennedy, the hippie mom and Darman Gray, called me up and I said, okay, I'm going to send you what I've got. I sent it to her and she said, okay, Mary, you have to tell your story. I said, no, no, I can't. It's too painful. You have to tell the story of you and your sister. That's the heart of this. And I just said, I can't. And then I thought, okay, she's right. And Aiden said, she's right. So I started writing these scenes, and I would just sit there writing and cry. It was kind of cathartic, but it was also very upsetting and unnerving. And so I did it. And then uh, Jerry Rapier from Plan B called me up, and he said, um, Aiden tells me you're working on this play. I said, yeah. He goes, I want to read it. I said, no, 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 it's not finished. It's not, it had, you know, because it had to be perfect. And he said, just send it to me. I'm going on vacation. Just send it to me. So I sent it to him. Like two days later, he calls. He goes, I want to open next season with this. No, it's not done. It's not done. It's not finished. Well, you have to finish it. <laughs> and they did it. And they did it. It was amazing. It was just an amazing experience. It was incredibly hard. I would just sob every time I watched it. And then we would do these um, discussions afterwards that I would try and lead. Going <laughs> and even Mayor Becker led a discussion after one, and he was crying after it was over, so he had to kind of gain, regain his composure to do it. But Mimi Kennedy came, the woman who told me to write this play. She came. I had friends from all over the country come. A professor from MIT I had met when we were both speaking at a conference came. Um, a, a reporter from The Guardian in London came. It was amazing. A reporter from the Chicago paper came. It was just amazing what happened with that. 
play. And then we toured it around Utah, and um, people have done readings. I go speak to political theater classes about it. They make them read it, so that's good. And I remember the first time we did one in Walnut Creek, a reading, and I was sitting in the audience, and I hear this girl sitting next to me going, oh, my God, oh, my God, wouldn't it be awful if that really happened? And I'm like, it did happen. I didn't make any of that up. That's all from transcripts. That's all from real documents. I didn't make any of it up. She was stunned. People just kind of don't know that story. And that's why I think it's important that you told it. Yeah, yeah. And now that Trump's, like, rattling the saber with the Korean, North Korean leader, and they're talking about starting another arms race and... It's just so disheartening to me that we haven't learned anything from the past. And I had a, a group in Eugene, Oregon, called me, and they're going to do a reading up there in August that's as a cool. fundraiser oh, for people fighting it. So it's like, great, great. What gives you hope? So with all of the, the shit in the world. And, <laughs> and, and there's and, so and with, much. And with, with the there's current. So what gives you hope? Um. Every time you hear a story of somebody doing something good, it gives me hope. And you've been a part of that. I don't know. There's still a lot of good people out there, Steve. There's still a lot of good people who really want to make a difference, and it gives me hope. Yeah, I have to have hope, or you just give up. I don't know. I mean, I, I managed to stay cheery despite how dreadful everything is right now. I mean, not just here. I'd say across the world. But you know what? It's always been awful. It's always been terrible. I always watch these. I love movies about history. And I just watched one last night. This is what I do for fun. About India getting its independence. And I don't know if you know that story. That, that ended up dividing that country between Muslims, Sikhs, and Hindus. And the bloodshed was intense. Like one million people were killed when England finally decided to give India its independence. They left and all hell people. broke loose, literally. A million people were killed. 14 million people were displaced. That's the largest migration in human history. And when you see what happened there and what the real reason was for why that happened, why the British did what they did, why they created... Uh, Pakistan, it was because they wanted to safeguard the oil from the Middle East from the Russians coming in. Oil again, oil again. It's the worst geopolitical um, poison around. I don't know. You, I watch these history shows, and I just think people have always been awful, and yet there have always been good people. So and I think that your life is like an essence of that. And it, because you're bringing all these people from all different backgrounds into your home right. to be part of your family, right. and I think that it's one person at a time. And it's You know what? That's the best diplomacy. You're right. You're, you're exactly right. Until you live with someone, you don't really know them. You don't really know their culture. And the great thing about having them is all my friends have gotten to know them and understand those cultures. And have become kind of ambassadors in that way. These kids go back to their home countries and become ambassadors for America in a way. Um, 
that we're it's, not it's, all crazy. Yeah, I tell you, it's citizen diplomacy. That's the only thing that works because governments will always be corrupt. They will always not have the best interest of their people at heart. It's up, it's up to citizens. It's up to us because they're not going to do it. On a lighter note. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we need one, huh? You have a mannequin in your house. Stella. You have a mannequin, mannequin that you move around in your house. I do, and, and I and change you put it her the, costumes. Tell, okay, why, why the hell do you have there? a mannequin in your house? And, like, what's the story with In it? the entryway. Okay, I have this goddaughter, and when she was young... She came to stay with me, and we went to this store, Grunts and Postures. They were going out of business, and they were selling the mannequins, too. And she said, Mary, let's get a mannequin. I thought, why not? So we took her <laughs> arms and legs off so she'd fit in the trunk. So we drive up with these arms and legs sticking <laughs> out of the trunk. We take her to the entryway. We put them back on, and, we st and I collect costumes. So we would go down to my costume closet, and we'd start dressing her, and I don't know. I just left her in the entryway. That that was probably, oh my gosh, twenty years ago, and I've just left her there. Okay, this is a okay. But you frequently change her costume. I do. I change so her how, clothes. Do, how do we do this? Is there like random timing um, when you change? Her no, clothes? every once in a while, I'll just decide I should change her outfit. <laughs> yeah, do the holiday specific. Yeah, during the holidays, <laughs> okay. like I have this Chinese um, red silk dress with slits up the side on her, and then I put the Susie Wong wig on her on Chinese New Year, and then. <laughs> And right now she's got this kind of long blue Indian outfit on with this like jewels in her hair and <laughs> the bracelets and the hookahs right in front of her. And that's been on her for too long, I can tell, because it's starting to fade from the sun. <laughs> it's like it's time to change Stella's outfit. And sometimes I'll just put my clothes on her and then I'll think, I want that back. Give me that back, Stella. I want to wear that. <laughs> You're always still in my clothes. You're always taking my clothes, Stella. So another lesson is don't take life too serious. No, don't. Don't. It up. Exactly. This was just do weird things. Okay, this is funny. So one time, this was when the boys were all there. <laughs> it's like one in the morning because we would stay up late. And these teenagers walk up my sidewalk. It's like, who are these kids? I mean, they were young. They come up and... I opened the door, and they said, can we take a picture of your mannequin? <laughs> I said, sure. So they came in. They take a picture of the mannequin. And then when the one kid sees my piano, he says, oh, you have a piano? Can I play it? Okay. So he's playing and singing show tunes. <laughs> and then my big dogs come out, the old English sheepdog. Oh, I love your dogs. Can we take a picture with your dog? <laughs> and they're still there. <laughs> I'm surprised they, they, no, they didn't come back. But I just thought that was so hilarious. They're just yeah. so random. One o'clock in the morning, can we take a picture of your mannequin? Okay, so note to self, don't go at one. But I, yeah. I'm okay up until one. Yeah, like you can take midnight. a picture with the mannequin. Uh -huh. All right. Yeah. I cannot tell you how many pictures people have taken pictures with Stella. Well, I didn't realize that she had a name. So she now, has a name. I, so now I know that. You know, her name is Stella. I don't know why. So we could call her Stella. <laughs> <laughs> What's the best lesson? You've had so many backgrounds. What's the best lesson in life that you've learned? 
that I learned. I mean, we have my mom that listens to this. Maybe Dylan's mom. So there's about two. There's <laughs> we have maybe, an audience of two. There might be three. I mean, we are we're working on the third or fourth person. Maybe I can help you get another one. Yeah, try to get us get another listener. Four. Well, at least we've got a strong woman audience. Yeah, that's good. That's good. They're all just sympathetic <laughs> to our shittiness, and they're just like these guys are screwed without us listening. Oh, that's funny. The lesson. Okay, one is never take yourself too seriously. Uh, let's see. The other one is just always be open to possibilities and always say yes. You never know what great adventure you'll have. It's pretty good. Yeah. And you know what? I always, I always, I always tell this to students. You can make all the plans you want for how you want your life to go, and life will take you where it wants. Yep. You just have to <laughs> go along for the ride because you never know where you'll end up and what you'll actually do. That's why I always hate it when people say, what? what's your five-year plan? It's like, I don't know what I'm doing this weekend. <laughs> That's why I hate job interviews. Where do you see yourself in five years? I know. I'm not where I wanted to be five years, you know. I know. I'm you know what? I'm someplace better. Yeah. You can have, you can make all the plans you want, and life will take you where it wants. It's like you just have to go with the river. It'll take you different places. You just have to trust it'll take you somewhere interesting. I just think it's all, you know, you, you have to look for adventures. I mean, don't be dangerous about it or irresponsible, but some of the best times I've had have been when people invited me somewhere or have said, do you want to go to blank country? And I thought, you know, say yes, why not? And I've never regretted it, ever. That's good advice. That's my advice. Say Might yes responsibly. Yes, yeah, say yes responsibly. All right. Yeah. Who inspires you? Who inspires me? Oh my gosh, all my friends and all these interesting people I get to meet. Really, I watch these people and I think you're so brave. I'm such a coward and you're so brave. And you dare do this. I mean, I have a friend, she's in her 30s. She will find cheap fares and just book a trip and then figure it out. And I admire her because she has gone on, she's gone to Patagonia by herself. She went to Thailand by herself. And I think, okay, she's not waiting for someone else. She just does it. I admire that. I admire all those people I've met who've started organizations and nonprofits and know how to do it. I have a friend, I admire him because he had a job as a vice president of a huge medical company and decided it wasn't satisfying and quit to pursue creative projects. And I, I see these people and I just think, there's some really amazing people out there. I want to do what they do. Yeah. I actually think you do do that. And you actually help all of us. So if people want to watch your show. Weeknights at 9.55. Or they can watch it online at kvd.org slash contact. I, I don't think that. that's the first time you've said those. <laughs> Does it sound rehearsed? <laughs> a little bit. No, it sounded pretty like spontaneous, so yeah. I didn't see any. And you can also watch the contact in the communities. Those have been fun. Those are, I've met some amazing people, really. Like, I met this, this guy who, up in Logan, because we went up there to do things on their historic theaters, and... He was telling me the story of how they were going to tear down this beautiful historic theater in Logan to put in a parking lot. And so he would go and, like, 
talk to the, whatever, the town commission, you know, the county commission, city commission, council, whatever, and they just said that, you know, it's just not profitable. Those theaters aren't profitable. A parking lot would bring in more money. So he told me the story of this lady in her 80s who showed up at that meeting, and she stood up there, and she said, may I ask how many of you have a rose garden? And they all like raise their hands. She goes, and what kind of profit did you make from it last year? And she said to them, sometimes a thing of beauty is worth it because it's beautiful, not because it makes a profit. You know what? They didn't tear the building down, and they renovated it. It's gorgeous. And in the plaster inside that theater, roses. Because, <laughs> because of her. Uh-huh. But when he told me that story, it was just incredibly moving. I thought, here's another man who had a vision and made it happen. You know, they saved that theater. That, to me, was a big deal. My in-laws met at Utah Theater. Oh, they did? Yeah. So they, you know, all the big movies back then, they would be there. And we took a tour of it the last time it was available to walk through, and it was just, you know, amazing to hear their stories that, you know, when this movie came out, we had this big display here. I know. I mean, everything. It was just they're treasures. Yeah. You don't tear down your treasures. You don't tear them down. We tore down too many things on South Temple. That's sad. There were gorgeous buildings there that got torn. That's kind of why I'm in this building. I love this building. It, yeah. You know, we took a a building that had worn down and yeah. it had it aged a little bit, but we wanted to revitalize it. Yeah. And we wanted a restaurant here, and we wanted a chocolate shop here. And we we took a chance. And look, you did it. You were brave. Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a wuss, but you know, I, but I think that sometimes you do it because you should do it, I not think necessarily so too. because there's grand like millions of dollars. No, I it, think yeah, it's you're for right. the right thing. And I think mm-hmm. I appreciate you because that's what you bring to us and to Aww. all of all of us Thank you. and and i th- i'd say that with all of utah i mean everybody that knows you and that has met you you Aww. take everything of taking like looking a little deeper and looking not just yeah. on the surface of issues but trying to bring strange people into your homes that are just like us and right. and just like you know the arts and just the issues the environmental issues anything yeah. that impacts us you internalize it and make it so that we're aware of it. And I think that's why I love that you came on today. Oh, thank you. Because I think you bring that to our community. Thank you. So thank you. So keep doing it. Thank you, guys. Okay. Dylan has a random last question. Okay. I actually came up with another bonus question, too. You have two? I have two. Uh Uh-oh, two bonus questions? The first one is (laughs) your favorite Muppet and why? My favorite Muppet? Yeah. Miss Piggy. <laughs> <laughs> That's your favorite Muppet. Yeah, because, okay, you know, she came across as really vain and everything, but she loved a frog. <laughs> <laughs> okay, that's actually pretty good, because I'm probably a frog, so I'm going to have to find somebody that will tolerate me. You'll find somebody. Aww. No, I'm probably more like Gonzo. <laughs> so it's gonna have to, so it's gonna have to be somebody way worse than yeah, there are a bunch of chicks around you. Yeah, all right, there you go. Uh, I could have that. I could uh, have that. And then the other bonus question is: In your life story, who would you have play you? Oh, oh, Michelle Pfeiffer <laughs> would play you, and why? Because she's 
blonde and kind of smallish, and I think she has a good heart. I don't know her. You're going to meet her, and she's going to be the meanest person ever. <laughs> and I'll be and you're so be disappointed. Like, I'll okay, cancel, send Stella to slap her. <laughs> Stella. <laughs> Stella. Mary, thank you for thank being you, on. Mary. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Remember to listen to her or watch her show. Contact. Well, there'll be links in the show notes. Okay. Woot woot. Bye bye. See you next time. See you next time.